The coronavirus pandemic meant that examinations this year were impossible and instead grades were given out via teacher assessments. Those results were out yesterday. This is for A-levels and unsurprisingly, grading was much more generous than usual. As you can see from this chart from the Sutton Trust, the proportion of A-stars has gone up from 8% in 2019 to 19% this year. 2019, of course, being the last time exams were used. For A-grades, they've gone up from 18% to 25% of all grades awarded. Um, by the time you get to, to C-grades, that pattern is reversed. What stayed the same is just as significant, and that's the huge divide in results granted to state school pupils and those in independent schools. I prefer just calling them private schools. I'm not sure why we call them independent schools. Anyway, the already large gap there has only increased. Again, this is from the Sutton Trust. The percentage of pupils getting A or above by school type in 2019, it was 44% in 2021. It's 70% in looking at academies. In 2019, it was 24%. In 2021, it was 42%. For sixth forms, it's 22% and 35%. And for comps, comprehensives, it's 20% to 39% getting A or above. So an increase in all of those schools, but as you can see, a bigger increase among private school students than anyone else. Sir Kevin Collins was appointed by Boris Johnson to advise the government on how our education system could recover from the COVID pandemic. Of course, very relevant because we're seeing that gap only increase. He resigned when his advice was ignored by Boris Johnson and he spoke to Radio 4 this morning. There's a huge risk that one of the, um, the legacies of COVID, the education legacy of COVID, could be growing inequality. Now, to tackle that and to deal with that, we need a comprehensive, robust and long-term plan. Um, I don't believe that recovery will happen naturally. And I think if we don't do something intentional about it, we will have growing inequality in our education system. Now, you came up with a comprehensive plan, £15 billion worth of it. It was rejected. Do you know who rejected it? Do you know why it was rejected? No, um, it, it was never my job to decide. It was my job to advise. And it's perfectly valid for people to decide they don't want to take that advice. So I think that's completely okay. I think the, my issue is that we, whether you accept my plan or any plan, we must have a plan. This has to be intentional work. Um, it, it won't happen um, by accident or just naturally, in my view. We must have a plan with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and Gavin Williamson as Education Secretary. I personally do not have much confidence one will be forthcoming. To discuss the educational divide and the long shadow of COVID, I'm now joined by Jeevan Sander, an economist at King's College London, researching inequality and poverty and a former official at the Treasury. Jeevan, we already had an incredibly unequal education system before the pandemic hit. Can you talk about how COVID has has changed that? Has it made it worse and in, in what ways? Yeah, has certainly made it worse. I mean, look, let's think about where we were before this pandemic, right? A disadvantaged student was about 18 months behind by the time they started their GCSEs. And those divides in education, they don't just start at birth, they start before birth, okay? Because not having enough money is stressful. Women on low income are twice as likely to miscarry. Their children are much more likely to have low birth weight. That means by the time they start school, they're already four months behind their children are. They've heard four million fewer words. So children from disadvantaged backgrounds are already doing worse. And then COVID hit. And as with the labour market impact, the same thing happened in schools as well. Those on high incomes, relatively well shielded. Those on low incomes really suffered. 
one in five on free school meals didn't have access to a computer at the start of this pandemic. One in three on the people premium didn't have a quiet place to study. We saw hunger rise as well. And hungry kids, they really don't learn very well. So we would have expected in any case for this to hit low-income kids harder. And then we had this system of A-level grades, teacher-assessed grades that hit those kids even worse. Now, I want to be clear, like I'm an academic and I'm part of a program that teaches disadvantaged children in schools. I did it before this pandemic. I did it beforehand. And teachers and kids did a heroic job. I can't commend them enough. But then they had this system of A-level grades where each school had to try and cobble together some system to try and grade their children. And the truth is, for national qualifications, you need national standards. Instead, teachers had to do their best. And what happened? Well, of course, own research said that disadvantaged kids were most likely to lose out, most likely to suffer from unconscious biases, most likely not to be in school because COVID hit them harder. And we saw that in the grade results as well. You showed there earlier that I think a 70% of A stars and A's are private schools. But we also have to think about is the fact they got a much higher increase, 12% increase in A stars at private school compared to 4% at comprehensive. Now, I don't think kids at private school did that much better than this year. I think they got luckier because of the system they were kind of left with. There's also another divide between those in the middle and at the bottom as well. Those on free school meals fall further behind those who weren't on free school meals. So we've seen this divide open up at each point, the top putting further away from the middle and the bottom falling further away from anyone else. And the final thing to say about this is that this year might have been difficult, but next year, because universities are so oversubscribed, we're the hardest year for kids to get into Russell Group universities. And who is going to suffer? Undoubtedly, those disadvantaged and low-income children. You're rightly talking about how the the gap between private school kids and Mm -hmm. state school kids and kids on different incomes has increased this year. But because everyone's grades have increased, I suppose that's kind of masked. If people are generally getting higher grades than they would have otherwise got, they're not that inclined to complain that other people are getting even higher grades because they're, they're pleasantly surprised by what they've what they've been given is that now going to leak out of the system and we're just going to be we're going to end up with way more disappointed working class kids than we have over the last decade or what happens next so without a doubt next year is going to be the really big one i mean this year as well let's be clear universities gave out less offers because of the exam fiasco last year as well we'll have to see exactly what happens inside the numbers but i am expecting that actually disadvantaged kids still would have lost out this year but next year it's going to be absolutely awful i mean i'm hearing about courses that are oversubscribed by over a hundred percent there's just no way to kind of make up that shortfall there aren't enough resources there aren't enough teaching staff either in future years we're going to see this really really hit very badly i mean this year has been bad but it will be worse in future years the other thing that will of course happen in future years is about those students who didn't sit their a levels but are further down kind of in the educational system and their learning is going to suffer and as has been covered beforehand there is just not a system in place to ensure they can make up that lost learning We heard there Kevin Collins say there needs to be a plan. It's not my role to decide what the plan is, but there needs to be a plan. I haven't seen one yet. Have you seen any inkling of of investment or plans to help kids recover after spending almost a year out of school? And if not, what, what should it look like? So the plan that the government released is worth 1.5 billion. And as Kevin Collins covered, the one they wanted was 15 billion. Now that 15 billion plan would have had things like longer school days, summer schooling, one-to-one tutoring, and a whole range of educational investments as well, including emotional support as well. For anyone who wants to see the details, I would recommend the Educational Policy Institute report. It's incredibly comprehensive. Instead, we got 1.5 billion pounds for a year lost schooling. Now to put that number into context, Eat Out to Help Out, one month 
of us having freer or rather cheaper meals almost cost a billion. So we're spending much, much less than we did, or rather proportionally less than we did on ensuring we had free school meals, and also completely uh, unequal to the task at hand. I mean, the benefits of spending that 15 billion, at least 60 billion pounds. So if you're looking at some pounds and pence, it's definitely a good investment, in likelihood like to be much, much higher. And as an economist, like investing in children and schooling, it's harder to think of investment that has a high return. And it's absolutely baffling the decision was made. And I have I would struggle to think of what the rationale was behind that. Let's talk about the broader divides in education, which I suppose pre-existed COVID. And before you listed, I suppose, some of the the arguments as to why that inequality exists, overworked parents, low-income kids, even before they they enter school, are, are underperforming their, their richer peers. To what extent is this about inequalities outside the school and inequalities inside the school? We often focus on private schools and state schools, but is that actually... You know, are we then not seeing the wood for the trees? Is it is it the fact that actually it is the inequalities outside of school that matter more? Yes, we know that parents and schools make a huge difference in kind of primary school and as well as kind of your peers make a big difference in times of where you are in secondary school. And on both levels, kind of this government has failed. And it's particularly around early years education. Okay, we know early years education has a huge impact on your later learning, and we know we have a system here that just isn't up to task. Okay, so I think around childcare providers are about underpaid by about a third. There just isn't enough funding in the system. So by the time you get to school, you're already falling further behind. Spending per pupil is now 10% lower than it was in 2010 as well. And as you rightly pointed out, outside of school, four and a half thousand fewer youth workers, hundreds of fewer youth centres as well. This is a whole system, right? Like it is not just about education, but a huge part of it is are teachers well resourced enough? You need that as well to begin with. But you need both sides of it. You know, you need to have a good kind of home environment, a good community, and a good learning environment to raise a child. Okay, it doesn't just take a village; it also takes a school and your parents as well. So you need all three of those things to really kind of match up together to give kids the best start in life. Is it the case that however much we invest in state schools, private schools will just invest that little bit more, and so they'll always have grades which are much better than than at state schools, and you'll always just have this baked-in inequality in the education system? Do you, do you think there is any way of closing that gap without just abolishing private schools? I think actually, like private schools spend about fifteen thousand pounds a student, and in the estate system is about six thousand pounds. So my view is actually our state school should be so good that no one wants to send their kid to Eton, right? That we should get it that much. And also, by the way, tax private schools on VAT at the moment, of course, they still have VAT relief. And so I think that actually we should see if we could get there, right? If private schools keep pushing it further and further up, fine. But at the very least, you need to start closing that gap. You need to make our state schools to be best. I mean, our schools should be absolute paragons of learning. If tomorrow is supposed to be the knowledge economy where what we do or rather what we know matters the most, that we should be preparing our kids for that. That's such a high investment return. I don't think that like abolishing private schools is also going to get rid of that issue. Like if you were to abolish private schools, I mean, middle-class parents are still going to invest in private tutoring. They're still going to do everything they can do to ensure their kids can get ahead. Now, every parent wants their kid to get ahead, but therefore every child should have the opportunity to get ahead. And that's where I see being the real issue. Like let's at least increase investment uh, to get to our state schools are absolutely brilliant. I'm basically very reticent about banning anything in one respect. And like, if you want to spend money on your kid's education, that seems to be like a choice that people should be able to make. But at the end of the day, I think every kid should have the best education possible and not have to worry about that. Jeevan Sander, thank you so much for speaking to us this evening. 
We are going to stay on the subject of education. Obviously, we've been talking about some of the longer term issues with the education system in Britain. One of the short term issues has been that we have for the past two years had an education secretary who is completely, and I have to emphasize this, completely incompetent, absolutely appalling at his job. Everyone, it seems, from every political persuasion admits that Gavin Williamson is not up to the job. He couldn't get laptops to kids nine months into the pandemic. Now, because it is universally accepted, he's not particularly good at his job, there are suggestions that he is about to be replaced. And the Times are suggesting that will be by Kemi Badenoch. The Times has been told this by multiple sources, apparently. And they report that Douglas Smith, a conservative fixer for three decades who has been brought into Johnson's number 10 team, is said to be pushing for Badenoch, who's 41, to have the role in the reshuffle. Smith, who is married to Manira Mirza, the Prime Minister's Downing Street policy director, is said to be a key influence at Number 10, informing the government's stance on woke issues such as race, trans rights and attacks on historic statues. Badenoch is said to have impressed Smith and others in the party's hierarchy. Now, for me, this really, really shows where Tory priorities lie. Yes, they should sack Gavin Williamson. They should have sacked Gavin Williamson a year ago. But now it seems that the principal criteria for who to replace him with isn't who can best manage this, you know, formidable task, which is organising catch-up learning for a lot of kids who've been out of school for a year. It is putting someone in that role who they think has been successful at fighting culture wars, someone who they back on woke issues, who they think has been good at standing up and saying, no, we shouldn't attack statues and we shouldn't teach critical race theory in schools. Now, whatever you think about critical race theory in schools, I mean, they don't teach critical race theory in schools. This is just a complete scare story anyway. But even if you believe that, the idea that this is a priority for our education system right here and right now, I think is, I mean, it just, it tells you everything you need to know about Boris Johnson and his government. Apparently, it turns out Gavin Williamson is not planning to take any sacking lightly. They quote a Tory MP as saying, he is wetting himself about getting the sack. He keeps telling people he knows where the bodies are and the PM is too weak to sack him. So we have a, a prime minister planning to put in place a new education secretary, principally because she's tough on woke issues, and an education secretary who is refusing to leave because he has secrets on the prime minister. This is not how our country should be governed. I want to go to one more issue involving Gavin Williamson. He caused controversy on an issue yesterday I want to discuss. Here he is answering a question on whether universities that don't go back to full face-to-face -face teaching should have to charge lower tuition fees. Well, I think universities have got to sort of stand up their offer to their own students. I think that they have a flexibility and the ability to deliver face-to-face -face lectures. I'd expect them to be delivering face-to-face uh, -face lectures. Well, they are autonomous institutions. I don't have control over them. No, I understand but, but, that, Minister, um, but my question but, uh, is, do you we, think we they would expect. Uh, we would expect a university to delivering a high quality teaching experience. And part of that is actually doing face to face lectures. And if they don't, should there be a refund for those? Well, universities have got to stand up their offer to their students, but we've got the office for students, which is targeting universities, which have low quality courses, which aren't doing enough. And we'll give the OFS all the power, all the backing in order to pursue those universities that aren't delivering enough for students that are paying their I'm fees. And of course, the government I'm are under I'm asking your opinion, Minister, what do you think? Well, I think if universities are not delivering, mm -hmm. not delivering what students expect, then actually they should 
shouldn't be charging the full fees of what they're done. That statement there from Gavin Williamson has been pushed back against um, by the Russell Group of Universities and Universities UK. They said a hybrid model is still appropriate and that lecture theatres could pose a risk of COVID transmission. Apparently 20 out of 24 Russell Group universities have said next term they will be providing some undergraduate teaching online. For their part, the Office for Students Who Regulate Universities have said hybrid learning is fine so long as they can show, or so long as universities can show, they're providing a good quality experience of higher education. Aaron, what do you make of Gavin Williamson's argument there that universities who stick with online lectures should have to cut their fees? I agree with him, Michael. First of all, his answer is is sort of broadly, it's comprehensible. You know, obviously you're trying to get this sort of Paxman-esque, yes, no, do you agree or disagree? But there's something which, it's not a regulator, but it resembles one. And it can call out universities if they're not basically providing the kind of services that students would expect. And I think that's that's actually broadly what is happening. It's what happened last year. A lot of the remote learning was just not good enough. They were crap. They were basically crap YouTube videos. It's one thing to say we can't have you know offline face to face learning. Totally get that, but then not to invest in actually the technical technical and you know the sort of the engineering back end to pres- to provide people really good effective resources which generally speaking didn't happen michael universities pivoted towards this incredibly poorly generally speaking and so given that i do agree with him i, I don't think that they're getting value for money and people like you uk universities uk who by the way i'm blocked on by on twitter by them michael they they wanted tuition fees to go to nine thousand pounds because they were saying this will allow us to invest in a better product for for students and you know they need to be treated like consumers because that will create a more efficient marketplace etc etc live by the sword die by the sword michael uh, I, I like my 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 biblical analogies and this is what's happened they wanted their students to be like customers and consumers and that's what you've got and if that's the case you have to understand you have to accept fundamentally that consumers aren't going to pay the same price for an inferior product which is what has happened so either they have to refund them or they have to give them an online product as good or hopefully even better uh, than what they were getting before, which I don't think anybody is claiming. Who, who's claiming that these hybrid learning structures which were provided last year were as good as what they were previously offering? Nobody's saying that. Nobody's serious. So I think, of course, they should be getting refunds. Of course, they should. That's how, that's how the private market works. But of course, if you're Universities UK, if you're these university managers on two, three, four hundred thousand pounds a year, you, you only want the private sort of sector. You only want market, um, you know, market fundamentalism when it suits you. Oh, God, no. If it means I can't get a pay rise next year, or if it means I can't go on soirees and have really expensive dinners with people and, you know, we, we, we can't, you know, build this new, this new stand in my honor. You know, that can't be my legacy as a member of university management. By the way, most of these people are failed academics or incredibly mediocre ones. Then no, I don't want, I don't want the market. Here's the thing, Michael. The invisible hand never picks up the bill. This is what they wanted. They should, they should accept this is where they are. Their students are now consumers, and if your consumers are pissed off, you're going to have to do something about it. They can't have the best of both worlds. Well, presumably, I mean, we can have a discussion about whether or not universities should be free, but presumably what they'd argue is, look, these people chose to pay these fees. They're still, you know, people know that it's going to be a hybrid system next year and people are still going to university, right? So, so I mean, they, they can say that the free hand of the market means that people are willing to pay us nine grand a year, even if some of them are, are complaining. For this year, I agree with you. I think people aren't going into this academic year under any illusions. Last year, Michael, there was quote well, people were missold quote, a product, is what you mean. One hundred percent. 
100%. And there was a level of certainty communicated by university management. So I'm not saying every university, but you saw multiple institutions where this happened. And they, they were selling a level of certainty, which was frankly, uh, I think it was morally unacceptable. And certainly they, they couldn't really be sure of what they were really saying. Of course, they had to say it because they were terrified they wouldn't get sufficient numbers because, of course, they need the consumers because that's where their revenues come from. So I think they were missold a product, Michael. And I think the consequence of that are you are going to be criticized by your consumers. And I think they're right to ask for their money back. No, I think that's a good point. Or is it not the same, you know? No, I I was looking at at next year, but I think you're absolutely right. A lot of those university managers did give a completely misleading impression to their students. One thing I would dispute there with Gavin Williamson is I do think that, you know, in-person seminars are 100% necessary. I mean, you want to be having those conversations with your teachers and your peers. In-person lectures, for me, lectures was just loads of people sitting in the same room looking in the same direction. They could have happened on YouTube. So I'm not actually sure that the experience of going to university is particularly undermined by lectures being online. For many people, it might be improved, to be honest, because it just means you don't have to get up in time. So it, seminars for me have to be in person. Lectures, meh, less so. It seems a bit arbitrary. It could be. Keyword, it could be, but they generally aren't because the investments weren't made and the technical know-how and the expertise wasn't there. You know, Navarro Media, we we were when the when the when the pandemic hit, we were very uh, effective and efficient at working with remote processes and we had line management, we had sort of content creation flows and all this stuff, growth journeys, all this crap that people talk about. We could do it pretty effectively, not having to see one another in an office. We were quite lucky to do that universities weren't like that and they didn't really make a major effort to change and from what i have seen michael the products that students generally had to engage with i agree with you it could be as good it could even be better all right and it should have been before the pandemic but it wasn't and that's not just limited by the way to like a youtube lecture you know they could think really radically and innovatively on this stuff some universities did but the vast majority didn't and i think that's why they shouldn't expect their consumers which is what they wanted them to be to pay the exact same price for an inferior product when they missold it I don't think in any other industry that would be acceptable. Interesting point. Caroline Duvier, hashtag Tisky Sour. What a slap in the face, Aaron. We worked incredibly hard to offer great online courses to our students. So you're saying me as a lecturer, I'm not worth it, even when I'm immunocompromised and don't want to die going to campus. Aaron, I feel like you should respond to that one. I'm not saying that, obviously. Um, I'm obviously not saying that. It has nothing to do with the quality of the lecturers. It has everything to do with the quality of the infrastructure built by the universities. You know, does the university that you work at, does it have a head of remote? Does it have, you know, the CTO, the chief technology officer, does it even have one? Probably not. How are they having a a holistic understanding of how they were going to do this last year? Not this year, last year. From what I saw, virtually every single institution I saw and how they dealt with this, technologically, it was very, 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 very poor. And we're talking about allegedly world-class institutions. British universities are some of the best in the world. But a place like UCL or Imperial or King's, which aren't meant to be you know, the top five, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, these are still meant to be attracting world-class talent. Undergraduate students, but also in, in graduate research and certain disciplines there are meant to be you know, some of the best, the best. And yet they couldn't, they couldn't get this right. And I think that's fundamentally because of the kind of people managing them. So it's absolutely nothing to do with the lecturers. And I don't think people should be, I said quite clearly, I think it's very possible to do online lectures and online seminars. I agree with you, Michael. I don't think, for instance, for instance, lectures are wise. I think an offline seminar is generally a good thing, but I think a lecture could be entirely remote. But the systems weren't being built by these people because fundamentally the priority wasn't getting the best value for students. It isn't in higher education. It hasn't been. It hasn't been for a very long time. It hasn't been. 
you know, the, the, the ability to produce stuff like this is going down every year. It's getting cheaper and cheaper to do. And yet kids are paying more and more for less and less. And they've been doing that for a very long time, probably 20 years. That's not a criticism of the academics. It's a criticism of university management's not, not utilizing these technologies properly. I think that distinction is, is quite important, actually, because it can be the case that students are saying the service we're provided this year after it's gone remote has declined and yeah. academics, which many are saying is it's, it's even harder delivering these lectures remote because we have to do more preparation. It's harder to make it engaging, et cetera, et cetera. It can be the case that the academics are working harder. The students are getting, uh, think they're getting a worse service and both are absolutely correct because the problem is that it's the medium that is the problem as opposed to the, the effort that either party are putting well, what in. we were saying, Michael, I'll be quick because, you know, I know you want to move on, but we were saying at the beginning of the academic year, it probably was wise just not to do it, right? Or to suspend things by several months to get those systems in place, but also not to, again, missell to young people, oh, go to university in September, everything's fine. And that created a spike in many places, actually. But, you know, we, we weren't saying, oh, they have to go back in September and they need to be face-to-face. -face. We were saying delay this and build something worth paying for. And also not stressing out the staff at the, at the face of this. So my my sympathies are with um, the person whose comment that that was, but I'm certainly not blaming them. Let's move on to our next topic. U.S. authorities are still pursuing the extradition of Julian Assange to face charges of espionage. Back in January, a judge blocked Assange's extradition. That was on the basis that Assange was likely to kill himself if he was held under the harsh conditions of the US prison system. But the US are disputing that. They're appealing the decision and they want to appeal the decision on the basis that the expert witness, the psychiatrist who said that Julian Assange was at risk of suicide, they're suggesting he was unreliable because he didn't disclose something about Julian Assange, which was that when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy, he fathered two children. The lawyer says he kept that to himself because it was you know, an issue of privacy for Julian Assange. A judge today has ruled that that does potentially undermine the expert witness. The Guardian report. Delivering the latest decision, Lord Justice Holroyd said it was very unusual for an appeal court to have to consider evidence from an expert that had been accepted by a lower court, but also found to have been misleading. Even if the expert's actions had been deemed an understandable human response designed to protect the privacy of Assange's partner and children. All of this means, and this is what I find quite depressing, that this October we're going to have another court case which is based on quite how suicidal is Julian Assange. I think the fact that this is the basis of the court case, I'm obviously not blaming the lawyers here. The lawyers have to use whatever means they possibly can to stop uh, a whistleblower being tried for espionage. So, you know, all, all credit to the lawyers. But the fact that our legal system means that instead of discussing freedom of speech and discussing the fact that we are extraditing someone who's done journalism for espionage, they're discussing whether or not, you know, quite how suicidal he is, I find that incredibly depressing. Let's go to the lawyer for the US because she makes it quite clear, I suppose, how how grim this all is. Um, so Claire Dobbin is her name. She said, he has not made the sort of serious attempt on his life or have the history of serious self-harm seen in other cases. It really requires a mental illness of a type that the ability to resist suicide has been lost. Part of the appeal will be that Mr. Assange did not have a mental illness that came close to being of that nature and that degree. Dobbin also argued that Assange proved he was able to withstand dire conditions by remaining trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. 
I don't feel like I'm in a position to adjudicate as to whether the judge has made a reasonable decision here. I, I don't have the experience in in jurisprudence to know whether or not an expert witness withholding a piece of information because they wanted to maintain the privacy of their client is is valid or not. I don't know. What I find grim, though, is that when we should have an issue which is based on freedom of speech, which is based on the right to protect whistleblowers, instead we are saying, oh, the guy should go to America unless there is zero chance that he won't kill himself. You know, we have to be absolutely sure that he will kill himself, otherwise he gets extradited. It seems just completely bizarre to me. Aaron, what do you make of it? How do you test this this this, this hypothesis? We don't think he'll kill himself. And then if he kills himself in a US prison, oh, sorry, we were wrong. You know, you have an independent assessment by a professional who, who who's familiar with these things, which is precisely what happened. So you're, you're obviously right. The, the, the nuances of the case are, are above our pay grade. Um, but clearly, uh, the politics of the whole thing sinks. There is an issue in, talk, in talking about suicide. And of course, we've had multiple high-profile suicides in the US prison system in recent years, most recently, of course, Jeffrey Epstein. So the idea that, well, the last time you had a very high-profile inmate, they allegedly killed themselves, why would Mr. Assange be any different? Specifically, if they're you know, of a politically sensitive nature, I think is a good one. Uh, the suicide rate in, in American prisons and jails are, are, is very high. It's very, very high as is self-harm. I think a huge, I think about 20% of people in the US prison system are assessed as having profound mental health is issues. Uh, obviously, he's been through a great deal of mental stress. You don't have to like the guy. You might think he's done wrong. You might think he should be incarcerated. But I, I don't think anybody would dispute the fact he's in clear emotional mental distress. That's, that's visible just from his appearance. He's obviously been through a very unique thing. Uh, but I am worried as well, Michael, we're talking about, we're talking about his case in the completely wrong in a completely wrong way. You know, we, we aren't talking about the political substance of what's happened. And, and it's important to say, look, they think this is what gets him off. I mean, that's the case. I mean, that, but, but my point is, from a political standpoint, it's a shame that we're not talking about the substance of what this man's done. And, and, and obviously, this is meant to be about justice. You know, right now, the Taliban is recapturing Afghanistan. Britain, the United States and their allies went there 20 years ago, actually a month after 9-11, effectively. And we've been there for 20 years. We've spent, Britain only spent about 35 billion, which is obviously an immense amount of money. It's about 2,000 pounds per family, per household. Uh, but together, $2 trillion was spent in Afghanistan. 100,000 Afghan civilians died. I think more than 2,000 US combat personnel died. More than 430, 50 British combat personnel died. Many more got PTSD, lost limbs, et cetera, et cetera. Profound, devastating loss. And people like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks were trying to expose the, the military war machine, the commercial military war machine behind that intervention, behind war in Iraq, and show actually they didn't go there with good intentions, generally speaking, and they certainly weren't playing by the book. And WikiLeaks exposed, for instance, disgusting attacks on, on civilians, I think things that border on war crimes, etc., uh, forms of illegal detention. I don't know about specifically about Afghanistan, but most certainly in Iraq. And that war machine can't allow Julian Assange to get away with it. And so we are now living in a world where the goodies, the people who uphold justice, are the ones that went to Afghanistan, spent $2 trillion, actually nothing changed, except now the Taliban have Humvees and Apache helicopters. They didn't 20 years ago, right? And people might say, well, they won't have them very long. They'll get shut down or they'll be drone strikes, probably. But are they going to take Kabul and, and Kandahar first? Yes, I imagine. So who, who are the good guys? Julian Assange, who exposed that? All these other people who, who, who profit from war. They profited from selling all this military hardware, and they're going to profit 
from the machines now destroying the military hardware being used by the Taliban. And I think it's there's a there's a certain sort of poetic poetic element to it. I don't like to use that word, but I think that's what it is. These events right now in Afghanistan are ongoing. The government of, of Afghanistan is collapsing in the face of the um, Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the Taliban, while Julian Assange is potentially being extradited back to the United States. And this is the argument we're having. Oh, well, we don't think he's going to kill himself. What a toxic civilization we are living in, Michael. Utterly barbaric and toxic. And I don't think you need to be on the left to say, you know what, in 50, 60, 70 years time, people will look at that as a what the fuck moment. What the fuck? They'll be looking, and I'm sorry to use the F-bomb in front of our audience, but that's exactly what it is. And they'll be looking at the first 20 years of the 21st century, culminating in our defeat in Central Asia and, and the Middle East, culminating in what's happening to Julian Assange. God willing, he doesn't go to the United States and he's let free. And they will say, wow, they spent trillions of dollars destroying Central Asia for no particular reason, literally for the status quo ante. Actually, no, that's not true. We did do one thing, which is massively increase opium production in Afghanistan. That's the legacy. Instead of putting that money into climate change and transitioning our economy away from fossil fuels. And the people that did it were the good guys. The people that did it were the good guys. And the bad mean guy was Julian Assange, enemy of national security. You know, we don't need to wait 50, 60 years to say that's a crock of shit, Michael, because it is. But that will be the universal consensus. God willing, in our lifetimes. Because it's going to be very satisfying seeing the people doing this right now being lamented and looked upon and despised and pitied and hated. We're going to return, of course, to this case in October. So that's when the actual um, appeal will be heard. The, the, just to, uh, to emphasise what was decided today is that in that appeal hearing in October, they can bring into dispute the evidence from the psychiatrist because the judge has decided that even though it's accepted by the previous judge, maybe there were things that that judge hadn't taken into account. Let's go on to our next story. Before that, if you are a supporter of Navarro Media, thank you so much. You make this all possible. If not, please do go to navarromedia.com slash support. The release of the latest IPCC report on Monday was one of the few occasions where climate change got the attention in our mainstream media that it deserves. It did get basically wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It, it should get wall-to-wall -wall coverage most days. It got it this Monday. That was because that historic report was released. It's also fair to say, though, that some of the decisions made by our broadcasters when it comes to who to platform to discuss that issue were a little odd. The oddest um, was probably the environmentalist platformed by BBC Newsnight. Where we are at the moment, facing what we face, I see one really important thing for the government to do, and that is to go strongly down the road of carbon taxing. This is the polluter-based principle. We all signed up to it when I was in the EU way back in 1970s. We actually had a legal instrument, which the UK applied as well. We have to go there. And part of that, of course, is also to have carbon border taxes. Yes, we will impose our own standards and our own taxes and our own charges, and that will generate so much money that we can help the white van man, we can help the disadvantaged sectors of society through the ex extra funds raised. It's a, it's a crucially important, important instrument which is not being adequately emphasised at the moment. So that environmentalist invited onto Newsnight's climate change special had a fairly familiar face, a fairly familiar voice and a familiar surname. And that's because as well as being an environmentalist, 
He's Boris Johnson's father. Newsnight got rinsed for giving Stanley Johnson the tagline environmentalist. I think he has expressed concern about the environment in the past, but he's clearly not one of the leading environmentalists in the country. He was invited on because he happens to be the Prime Minister's father. Why didn't they just put that on the tagline? Prime Minister's father, who we've invited on because the Prime Minister is too terrified to talk to us. I mean, the, the whole thing was just completely bizarre, wasn't it? Well, it was a repeat performance of what we saw in the 2019 election, Michael. You might remember Channel 4 had a climate debate. Boris Johnson refused to turn up. I believe in the end it was Rishi Sunak versus Rebecca Long-Bailey. She destroyed him, by the way. Uh, she was the most eloquent Labour performer on climate change, and she's not even in the shadow cabinet, which is unbelievable. And guess who turns up instead? It's uh, Stanley Johnson. He demanded he be allowed to talk on the stage, and uh, he he wasn't. I mean, wow, it's pretty dysfunctional, Michael, where you have a... It's not just the Prime Minister isn't willing to actually be scrutinised for the policies he's outlining on one of the biggest, I think, I think the biggest, but I think, you know, even if you don't think it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest uh, political issues of the day, and his dad turns up instead. And by the way, good for Channel 4. They said, please, you know, go away. Now the BBC are indulging it. And there's a great quote, uh, which is, you know, ecology or environmentalism without class struggle is gardening. And that to me just sums up somebody like Stanley Johnson. It's true that he's had a, you know, he's been involved in, I think the best word is conservation for decades, you know, the World Wildlife Fund and, and you know, the RSPB and all this stuff. So yes, he has an interest in conservation. He has an interest in nature. But I think, you know, it, it's time, Michael, given the wildfires that we're seeing at the moment, it's probably time we had a more informed conversation than Boris Johnson's dad. We're seeing the worst fires in Greece, Italy, Turkey in, decade, in decades. Yesterday in Algeria, 65 people died. Uh, we're seeing the biggest wildfire in the history of California. All of that combined is still smaller than the amount of wildfire, sort of, the, the amount of surface area covered by wildfires right now in Siberia. We're seeing something truly extraordinary. And the BBC, the public service broadcaster of one of the world's most powerful, you know, wealthy countries, is getting the Prime Minister's sort of bumbling dad on, uh, which is which is terrifying, frankly. And the thing he said, by the way, it was also what he said was completely nonsensical about, oh, well, we'll have a carbon tax and that will help the white van man. The one argument against the carbon tax, I would favour a carbon tax, but I would actually have it as my number two below uh, creation of a carbon coin or quantitative easing to pay for decarbonisation. You have to have that first. Because the worry with the carbon tax is the primary way of addressing this, Michael, is, of course, it's it's a regressive tax. And like with a tax on smoking or alcohol, very it can be very effective, of course, at changing behaviour, but it's not equitable. And the worry is, you might think, well, so what? Sorry, this is a bigger problem than that. The worry is, if you look at the gilets jaunes, you could see mass movements against the kinds of change we now need to deliver to tackle climate change in the face of this stuff because of these unfair these unfair taxes. So carbon taxation, really important, obviously part of the mix, but I think fundamentally he's wrong there too. The BBC is meant to be better than this, Michael. I mean, Christ, I thought it was a spoof at first. There's been a few of those this, this week. Well, it's especially the, the environmentalist tag that gives it that spoof quality. I want to bring up a tweet from Neon. Um, Neon are the new economy organisers network. They're a sort of network of people who pitch academics and activists to um, TV shows. We often use them on this show. And they tweeted with this um, screenshot of Stanley Johnson labelled as an environmentalist. Dear BBC Newsnight, over the last four days, we have been pitching eight different diverse climate scientists, policy experts, academics and activists with many decades of climate experience between them to discuss the IPCC report. There was no need for this to happen. I think that's a good reminder. You know, Stanley Johnson was there. Someone else could have been in that place 
who was far better qualified to have the discussion he was having, but who didn't happen to be the father of the prime minister's really odd style of democracy, whereby being related to an elected politician, you get to have such a loud voice. We shouldn't pretend there weren't experts on that show, though, and that's what made this particularly surreal, because Stanley Johnson was on the sofa with two people with really significant expertise. One was the economist Vicky Price. We've had her on the show before. The other was Kate Roeth, who is the author of a book, Donut Economics. Roeth made an interesting argument about growth and climate and the relation between one and the other. Let's take a look. I think it's time to deeply think again about the essentials of our economies. Nothing on planet Earth thrives by trying to grow forever. And we've inherited a 20th century framework that believes that endless economic growth is the sign of success. And yet nothing on earth does that. It's time to get beyond this deep dependence on endless growth and reach an economy that can thrive. And this is in fact the existential economic question of our times. And I think what's stopping a lot of the action that we already know we need on climate change is government's endless addiction and dependency on creating growth. So we need to put this question at the center of reframing our economies now. And you, of course, have been very influential on Extinction Rebellion. But just explain, what does a post-growth economy actually look like? What's the difference? Tell me how it would operate. Oh, it's an economy that no longer assumes the absurdity that it must get three and a half percent bigger every year, year on year on year on year. I mean, the absurdity is the idea of an economy that grows forever. That's the one that needs to be explained. We live in one of the richest economies in the world at the richest point of humanity. This country is richer than almost any country has ever been in the history of humankind. How is it that our politicians and our economists think that success depends upon yet more growth Stop. forever? That is what needs to be what? explained. Everything in nature grows and grows up, and that is how we come to thrive. From our own bodies and inside our own bodies, if we try to grow endlessly, we call it cancer, and we know it is death to our body. Well, we need to take what we know in the human body and take it now to the planetary body. It's pretty surreal seeing those two incredibly distinguished experts up on the screen, and then it pans to Stanley Johnson sort of guffawing as he leans back. And I showed that clip because I was actually particularly interested in what your take was on it. Fully automated luxury communism, what's its take? What's the line? Good question. It's a, that's the question, Michael. I'm glad you asked. Before I answer that question, Michael, it's important to say what Kate Rayworth is saying there about growth. What, what does a post-growth world look like? Hey, Kirsty Walk, we've only really talked about macroeconomic growth as a priority since the 1940s. The concept of GDP was created in the 1930s. The idea that it's been, it's been around there for, we had capitalism a long time before we had this obsession with GDP growth. You know, actually, capitalists are more interested in profit than growth, right? As we've seen, by the way, in the last 10 years, there many, many, many more billionaires, despite the fact that, you know, many economies, including Britain, on a per head basis, they're broadly stagnant. We've produced lots more billionaires. So the idea that, oh, what does a post growth world look like? Well, we know because that's what we lived in and, until this became the sort of prevailing orthodoxy about 80 years ago. It's not, you know, it wasn't 10,000 years ago. They weren't making stone tools in, in, in Mesopotamia saying, oh, we need to increase you know, production this year by 5% and we'll compound that over 10 years and we'll get, it's very new. In terms of where fully automated luxury communism is on this, Michael, we obviously need, need to move beyond GDP. 
GDP is a very, very, very poor. I mean, this is so hackneyed. You, you say it so many times, you think everybody knows this. And I, of course, our, our viewers know this. And I think instinctively, most people know this. But I'll give, I'll give you a classic example of, of, of GDP growth. Great quote, by the way, from speech, rather, from Robert Kennedy on this. No radical, really. He was, you know, he was trying to get the Democratic nomination for US president, the brother of, um, of, of John F. Kennedy. Uh, he talks about how GDP measures everything but that which makes life worth living. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example. If you have uh, 10 houses all next to one another on a street, and each of those houses has a kid, right? It's two parents and one child, and they all look after their own children. The father and the mother, or the mother and the mother, both, both parents raise the child equally, okay? There's no cash transactions going on there, right, Michael? There's no money changing hands. There's no growth. Now, if each house knocks on the door next door and says, I want you to look after my child, and I'll pay you 10 pounds an hour to do it, and they all do that, we're in the exact same situation where each house is looking after a child, it's just not their own one, and they're being paid to do so. Now, in the world of GDP, that is fantastic for the economy because you've just added uh, a, a huge amount of demand into, into the economy, and you've just expanded all the economic transactions in existence. Because what is GDP? GDP measures all the economic transactions in some, in a particular territory, in a particular year, in a given year. That's, that tends to be what it means. So the GDP of Britain for 2021 is around, I don't know what, 2 trillion US dollars, something like that. And that's comprised of all these transactions between individuals, between firms, etc. So that should make it quite clear that actually, in and of itself, this isn't a good thing. For instance, we could legalize drugs. You might not think, I don't think drugs are a problem, but you might not like drugs. We could legalize drugs. They would be part of GDP. And Overnight, which is what would happen, you'd have a probably a, quite a big increase in GDP stats because all this stuff previously in the black market, heroin, cocaine, cannabis is legalized. And now these are regular economic transactions. GDP would go up. It's questionable if that would actually be good for society. Uh, so GDP is not a measure of how successful or prosperous a society is. Clearly, it needs to be part of, of some broader indicator, uh, which has multiple aspects literacy, life expectancy, I think self-reported happiness, I think carbon emissions, uh, time off, leisure time. So you want some sort of aggregated metric by which to judge society. I think clearly we want to judge success, right? As, um, as Peter Drucker said, you can't manage what you don't measure. I think clearly as a socialist, you want to measure things, uh, but I don't think GDP is a particularly good measure. And that's not just me saying it, by the way. Uh, Simon Kuznets, the person who invented the measure in the 1930s, never intended GDP to be treated like it is. Never, ever, ever. He said, this is completely at odds with what I've done. Uh, not his own words, but he effectively had created, uh, he was Dr. Frankenstein, he'd created a monster. So yeah, there's a place for measuring economic transactions, but if it's just GDP and not happiness, not CO2 emissions, you have big problems and that's where we are. We've got big problems. We're not even measuring the things we should be measuring, which is why, Michael, right now we've got Sicily, 49 degrees C, We've got uh, a place in Syria, 49 degrees C, because we don't have an economic system which says, well, what are we prioritizing here? Right now, it's just economic value expanding, expanding, expanding. And we're destroying the planet in the meantime and ourselves, it should be said. We have got one more story to get through, so we will keep, keep this quick. But I do just want to ask, Aaron, it seems to me there are two issues here, right? So one is, is GDP a good accounting mechanism for whether or not we're moving in the right direction? The other is, do we want consumption to keep increasing? And I suppose why I'm agnostic about the degrowth question is that I do want consumption on a global level to keep increasing. And I feel like that's kind of the fully automated luxury communism argument is that, yes, let's have consumption keep increasing. So that's 
I mean, I, my, my consumption probably doesn't need to increase very much at all. But on a global level, I think there are lots of people whose consumptions could do with, you know, getting to the level that, that mine is as a happy middle class guy living in the West. Right. So so I don't think I am for degrowth. Is that am I misunderstanding something here? I get the point, Michael. I think going back to GDP, if you look at, for instance, healthcare in the UK, we have, a, I think we have an indisputably a better healthcare system than the US. We spend, I mean, it used to be 8% of GDP, now it's about 10%. In the US, they spend twice as much. They spend about 20% on as a percentage of health, uh, as a percentage of GDP goes on healthcare. Yet millions of people aren't covered. They have far more women die in childbirth. They have a lo lower life expectancy, you know, on, on, on most important measures in the United States is not as good as the UK on, on healthcare. By the way, Cuba has a longer life expectancy. So if you were to say to a developing country, oh, well, you know, more consumption, higher GDP means you can have a healthcare system like the US rather than the UK, it's not a great measure. Do we need, and this is where Marxism is very useful, sorry to bore our viewers, this is where you need to make a big distinction between use values and exchange values. An exchange value is something produced for profit, a use value is produced because somebody needs it. Yeah, of course, in the global south and actually in the global north, we need more housing, we need more schools, we need more medical care, we need more elderly care, we need all that infrastructure. But the idea that that's going to be measured through GDP, I think, is incorrect, Michael. And so in terms of GDP, I think I think the framing fundamentally of, of growth versus degrowth, I don't think is very helpful. You know, if we, if we decarbonize the planet's energy systems in the next 20 years, you would see an immense amount of economic growth, huge. All these contractors, all these, you know, um, resources being used, all the labor being employed, you know, of course you wouldn't do it because of that, but it would happen. It would definitely be an externality of it because you'd basically some see something like the New Deal done on a planetary level times times ten. So I, I think that kind of binary growth versus degrowth doesn't really it doesn't really work. I think we need to focus on our carbon emissions. I think we need to focus on leisure time, and I think we need to work on on self reported happiness. Uh, I think that's probably a better way of looking at it, Michael. We certainly need something other than GDP in terms of analyzing our success as societies. You know, any good little neoliberal goes to The Economist magazine every week. They look at the back. They look at their GDP stats and the country with the highest GDP stats. They go, that country is doing well. They've got they've got 5% this quarter. That country's only got Turkmenistan with 5% this quarter's doing better than this country with only 1%. I think great growth versus degrowth is not quite accurate, really. But I, I, I sympathize. I'm, I'm more with Kate Rayworth and somebody who says, oh, we need more growth. Because I think if you have a global Green New Deal, you're, gonna have, you're clearly going to have growth. Of course you are. That shouldn't be the goal, though, Michael. We are going to wrap up there. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure as always. It's been my pleasure, Michael. You've been, you've been the, the Vara Media MVP through August, same as every month. All, all your viewers know that. I just thought I had to say it. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Um, Maybe summer is going to begin again. Who knows? Well, thank you for watching tonight. We'll be back on Friday, I presume. I lose track of the days sometimes. And we'll be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.